Thanks, Ev, for uh, reading the passage and for your prayers. Uh, as always, you uh, often feel you're more blessed preparing a message than perhaps uh, for the people that receive it, uh, and I think that's very intentional from the Lord, isn't it? Uh, you need to have your heart changed before you think about anyone else's. So it's been a good message to think through, and I look forward to sharing it with you this morning. Sam shared with us last week on Isaiah 56 and 57, and one of the things that Sam noted was that the world looks at the church to see how it is living. In fact, there are some who would argue that so important is the way the church is living, the greatest danger to the church is not from the world around us, but from the church itself. When people from outside the church look in, what do they see? Is it a picture that welcomes them in and shows them a better way of living? Or when they compare the church with the world around them, do they struggle to find a difference? As we step through Isaiah 58 this morning, we'll see very clearly the title of today's talk, The Perils of Aziz Religion. Roald Dahl, the well-known children's author, told a story of an antiques dealer in Chelsea, London, by the name of Cyril Bogus. Mr. Bogus didn't have a large shop, but he still managed to make a tidy income each year by buying amazing pieces of furniture and selling them at tremendous profits. His friends in the trade couldn't figure out where on earth he found such rare items so regularly. Well, it turned out Mr. Bogus's scheme was rather simple, if not also rather deceitful. He dressed up as a clergyman and toured the English countryside, uh, posing as a writer of articles for the Society for the Preservation of Rare Furniture. When he spotted something valuable, he made the person an offer and then sold the item in his shop for 20 times as much. On one particular trip to Buckingham, he comes across a local called Rummins near a dirty ramshackle farmhouse. Once he convinces Rummins to let him inside, he's amazed to see a rare Chippendale ornate chest of drawers standing in this man's living room. These drawers were made famous by the 18th, uh, famous 18th century furniture maker, Thomas Chippendale, only three others known to be in existence. Well, Bogus nearly faints when he sees these drawers, but he recovers and, remembering, he's pretending to be a clergyman. He mentions, you know, he's got a chest of drawers at home and they need some legs. Maybe the legs off this one could probably fit my chest of drawers at home. Well, eventually he manages to con Rummins into thinking that the piece in his living room is simply a worthless Victorian reproduction and ends up purchasing them for the paltry sum of £20. All is going well with his ruse until Bogus heads back to his car and Rummin starts to worry that Bogus might back out of the deal. After all, it's only £20. So he decides to help him out by roughly cutting the legs off this rare piece of furniture. Then he gets concerned that what's left is rubbish and he'll be left having to dispose of it himself. So his friend Claude takes an axe and chops the rest of the drawers up into small pieces so they'll fit into Bogus's car easily. As Claude is finishing off the Chippendale with his axe, Mr Bogus drives up in his car to discover what's happened to his rare and precious set of drawers. For Cyril Bogus, pretending to be someone he wasn't eventually caught up with him. And while it's only a children's story, we'll see some interesting parallels between Mr Bogus and Israel in Isaiah this morning. The first thing we'll see is that Israel's pleasure is in as-if religion. 
The first words we come across in Isaiah 58 tell us there's clearly a significant issue with Israel's behaviour, one important enough to raise an alarm for. However, you'll remember from Sam's message last week that the leaders and elders of Israel were referred to as mute guard dogs, dogs that cannot give a warning when it's needed. Israel's own leaders are unable to sound the warning when trouble is afoot. They've failed at this key task. And so we come to Isaiah 58 and verse 1 this morning where we see that God specifically tells Isaiah, shout it aloud, raise your voice to be a trumpet. If Israel's religious leaders would not sound the warning, God would send Isaiah to do it. Now, for those of us who've uh, perhaps had kids who learnt the trumpet, we will know that a trumpet is an urgent signal. It grabs your attention. Uh, and in those days, it was often used as a siren or a warning call to a town. Isaiah, God says, sound the warning, put out a siren, make your message a piercing noise that disturbs people out of what they're doing and compels them to listen. This message is vitally important. We read on through verse 2, which tells us, They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right. At first glance, they appear to be faithful, religious. They're going to church every Sunday. They're praying and saying the right things. They're observing the religious celebrations. However, we do note the as if, don't we? as if they were a nation that does what is right. As in the case of our friend Cyril Bogus, there's pretense here in Israel. Something is not as it seems. However, insensitive to their duplicity, in Israel's mind their case is even stronger. They get even more confident in their own righteousness as they say in verse 3, Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed they're even fasting, they're even publicly humbling themselves with sackcloth and ashes. But God's still not answering their prayers. The Lord isn't noting their plight or bringing them salvation. And Israel is indignant. It's just not fair, Lord, they say. It's just not fair. How can it be that they're doing all the right things, but God's not paying them any attention? To have all the hallmarks of righteousness, but not see their prayers answered. Well, any confusion we might have is removed in the second half of verse 3 where we read, Yet on your day of fasting, you do as you please. Dig below the surface, God says, and we find out there's a difference between the public image and the private lives of Israel. In private, at work, at home, what's really going on is that Israel are in it for themselves. They're pursuing their own pleasure. Or to put it another way, ritual, God says, does not equal religion. So what happens when people replace religion with ritual? What happens when we take away a real concern for faithfulness to the Lord and we end up with empty motions and traditions? Verse 4 shows it plainly. We see exploitation of workers by those in power, unfair treatment. We see quarrels. We see strife and even unbelievably fistfights. Putting ritual ahead of true relationship with the Lord meant that Israel have strayed far from God's commands. They've walked far from the good things that the Lord had intended for their community. 
So how does this apply to you and I? As uh, Rachel, my old pastor in Christchurch, would say, how do we take this from our head to our hearts? I think the question for us is this. Do we see any pretense in our life, any pretending? If we think about our week this last week, is there a difference between what my friends see today at church, what my family saw yesterday, and what my colleagues saw on Friday? Did they see the same Andy or did they see a different Andy? How about for you? As the Lord dug below the surface, he saw that Israel's pleasure was in as-if religion, in pretending to be righteous and religious in public, but pursuing their own pleasure in private. As we progress further through the passage this morning, we come to our second point. God's pleasure is in the sacrificial service of others. God's pleasure is in the sacrificial service of others. And actually, we've already seen the bigger picture of this in Isaiah 2. If you've got your Bibles there, please step back with me to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Isaiah 2 verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I must say that when I read these verses earlier in the week and when I read these verses this morning, my mind actually goes to the opposite, to Ukraine. And it's uh, it's great that Ev took the opportunity to pray for the people of Ukraine and our brothers and sisters in Ukraine at the moment. How tragic to see the impact of war and conflict of people rejecting the role of law and inciting violence. Every news story about Ukraine, I think, brings back to us how wonderful in Isaiah 2 this vision is as a contrast. In Isaiah 2, God's people will be such a wonderful example to the nations around them of justice and righteousness that all the other nations around them will seek for Israel to be the judge of their nations. Could you imagine that? Scott Morrison saying, look, I think we'll have to defer to Israel because of their righteous judging. We'll we'll seek their, their ruling on Australia. What a, what a vision. And because of this justice and righteousness that should be in Israel in this time, all nations will be drawn to Israel. There will be such a time of peace and prosperity for all people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Most of us probably don't have swords or plowshares or spears or pruning hooks back home, but the vision is of people taking their weapons of war and transforming them into tools of peace and prosperity. 
It would be like a modern army taking their tanks and machine guns, melting them down and making tractors and ploughs and hay balers, taking their warplanes and turning them into crop dusters. Times of peace and prosperity. And we're intended to keep this vision from Isaiah 2 in our minds as we read through the rest of Isaiah. From Isaiah 2, we come back to Isaiah 58, and in verse 6, we find some quite specific aspects that other nations should see when they come to Israel. We read that God's people will be communities who are loosening chains of injustice, untying the cords of the yoke, setting the oppressed free, feeding the hungry, sheltering the poor, clothing the naked, looking after family, their own flesh and blood. Now this might seem, you know, a little different to our Melbourne experience as you read these words. Uh, you might feel like I just accidentally read from the World Vision website or maybe the ICC website, Graham, or Samaritan's Purse. And we, of course, know all those organisations were started by Christians and that's no accident. But here we just read straight from Isaiah 58. And I would like to point out a couple of aspects that were not just relevant in Isaiah's time or in a third world country, but also relevant for our city of Melbourne. Those first few items from verse 6, really we see a real concern for justice, to help people get out of oppressive or unfair situations, to avoid people being taken advantage of or treated unfairly. And in fact, justice is a common theme right the way through Isaiah. The second theme that I think we see in verse 6 is a real focus on blessing those less fortunate than ourselves. We all know people that haven't been as blessed as we are. We all know people that have less than us. Maybe that's from where they were born. Maybe that's the situation they were schooled in. Maybe that's from events later in life. And we know that even in a rich city like Melbourne, in a rich country like Australia, we do still have those without shelter, don't we? The homeless and those on the breadline, struggling families all across Melbourne. I will say very honestly that I find this list a really challenging one. When I compare myself against this list, it just shows me how much I have to learn from others about how to do these things well. And there are several people in this church that are you know, closely involved with these things and we can learn a lot from them. In general, we see from verse 6, God's people actively involved in their community. We see radical love, don't we? See a stranger? Well, walk up and help them out. (laughs) See someone struggling, trapped in a situation, do whatever you can to free them. And a whole nation that takes a special pride in justice for the poor, a generous and welcoming community, drawing newcomers in and blessing them. A well-known organisation in Melbourne runs a program each Christmas where you can help support someone in need to enjoy some kind of Christmas celebration of their own. We decided to do it with the kids last Christmas. We thought it would be good to help them understand that there are lots of people who aren't as blessed and well-off as we are, and Christmas can be a really tough time. So both Josh and Evie put in a little bit of their own money and they got to choose a gift to give someone. So Evie chose a present for a little girl to get on Christmas morning. Uh, And Josh, being our food lover, is there something about Josh's and food, Josh? Uh, Josh, being our food lover, chose, of course, to give someone a scrumptious Christmas lunch. 
And it was a really small but good way for our family just to just to, to show our kids that there are many people in need around us and there are things we can do to help. Interestingly, if we look down to verse 9, we could also add one more item to the list. When we read, if you do away with the pointing finger and malicious talk. And I'd have to say, looking at this list, right, I reckon the church would be so focused and involved trying to meet these goals, there's not going to be much time and energy available to point the finger or talk maliciously. Uh, Let me say, you know, from elsewhere in the Bible, rest is important and finding rest in the Lord and his providence is key. So these things are not intended to overwhelm us or fill every day from morning to midnight with extra things to do. Finding that rest and rest in the Lord is part of who we are too. But it's a good challenge, I think, if I ever get to the point where I find myself wanting to point the finger, wanting to lay the blame at someone else's feet. I've got to ask myself, have I really understood what the Lord had for me to do this week? It reminds me of the little story that makes the church rounds every now and then about those four church members whose names were everybody, somebody, anybody and nobody. Let's see a few smiles. You see, there was an important job to be done and everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. Justice, a helping hand for those stuck in situations, for those taken advantage of. Generosity for those around us, gentle talk, gracious interactions. All of these things lead to loving relationships, don't they? They all lead to authentic relationships. And when a whole group of God's people act this way, when a community is full of loving relationships and concern, well, the nations around them are going to see that and they're going to be tripping over themselves to be part of it. This is the vision God has for his people. God's pleasure is in the things of verse 6. God's pleasure is in the sacrificial service of others. So we've seen quite clearly from the passage that true religion, true faithfulness to God, transforms how we treat others. And we've also seen that it changes how we think about others, how we speak to others. In other words, true religion transforms relationships. And in doing so, in in transforming individual relationships, it also has the power to transform the communities that are made up of those individual relationships. That's the third and final aspect we're going to look at this morning. True religion drives active involvement with others, acts of service spurred out of generosity and concern for those who have less than ourselves. As you've been reading through this list in verse 6, you may have been thinking, how does this compare with my experience of church? Now, as we look at issues like poverty and hunger and injustice, there's clearly a place for corporate or organisational activism. You know, organisations mentioned earlier 
like ICC or Samaritan's Purse. Those organisations have a really important place in issues of uh, poverty and justice and they can often do things that individuals can't on a scale that individuals can't. And we know they do a tremendous work. However, Isaiah 58 is talking not just to large organisations but to the hearts of you and I. It talks into our day-to-day life, into those interactions and relationships that make up our week. God is calling us to examine our own relationships today. Are my relationships with my friends full of generosity and grace? Are my interactions with my neighbours generous that seeks freely to give to my neighbour without expecting anything in return? With the multiple lockdowns we've had <clears throat> over the last few years, you've probably got to know your neighbours quite well if you didn't already. I remember in one lockdown we had persimmons going from number 20 to number 16 in our street. Number 16 was turning them into jam and then sending that up and down the street. Number 16 was cooking muffins for number 7 and 18. And number 16 was helping number 14 drive to the shops once a week to pick up her groceries as she wasn't able to drive anymore. How is knowing the Lord flavouring our relationships? When I was studying at uni a few years ago, uh, we're getting old, Ev, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, Back then, uh, I lived in a share house with four Christian mates, and uh, we had a lot of fun over the years that we lived there. Almost every weekend, there'd be gatherings at the house, have people over to watch movies or hang out and chat, uh, have some pizza together. Uh, And actually, that was where I met my wife, Rachel, in that share house, so... Heartily endorse uh, uni and uh, studying with mates. It's good fun. One of my housemates was a, a wonderful guy called Ethan, a really gentle, compassionate and caring guy. Ethan was a great example to me of generosity with time and money. When he finished his degree, he went and got a job, and with that job he actually got a company car. And so he didn't really need his old car anymore. Uh, most of us, you know, I know I would uh, have gone and sold my old car, you know, got some proceeds and used that to build up some savings. But not, not Ethan. Ethan uh, had a friend whose car broke down and so he graciously lent his friend his old car because he didn't need it anymore. And to my knowledge, Ethan never got his car back. It just stayed with his old friend. A great example of generosity. Verse 10 calls us to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Back uh, back again in my CU days, we uh, did a placement with a church in a a fairly well-to-do area of Melbourne. And uh, we uh, went on a church golf morning, as you do, with a number of the other church members. As we worked our way around the, uh, the holes on the golf course, the conversation got to tithing, How much must we tithe? How much should we tithe? Eventually someone was brave enough to ask the pastor, well, pastor, how much should we tithe? Well, said the pastor, we should tithe until it hurts. You should tithe until you have to give up something. The recognition for these people, that was obviously a fair bit for them. Uh, But I think quite humbly they accepted that as a true and good word from their pastor. They saw that he spoke the truth. If we look at our own history at Monty, we've also got some great examples, don't we, of this kind of sacrificial service of others. 
a number of people, you know, as I, I think back on it, could have rightly retired and taken it easy, spent their time and their money on toys and holidays, but they spent a lot of their, they spent a lot of themselves in service of their brothers and sisters at Monty. A number of people, uh, even in recent years, who've donated a lot to church projects. We're a debt-free church because of the generosity of people here that gave. Nobody knows who gave, but it made a big difference. People who faithfully turned up every Sunday to do the things most of us probably don't notice. Those who really engage in others' lives, consistently encouraging them and praying for them and sending little notes and encouragements. Who take meals to others who may be struggling taking the time to buy and cook food and take it to those in need of a cooked meal. As a family, Rach and I have been really blessed by this as well, especially when Ari came along and it was a a very busy time. And of course, as people of Christ, we have the ultimate example in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We should all be prepared to give until it hurts. What an example this shows to our community and to those around us when they see our love for one another. I wonder, what is the Lord challenging you with this morning? Do you already see clearly the ways that God's using you to serve others in your personal and work life? Or are there one or two areas here that the Lord is calling myself and yourself to re-examine this morning? Perhaps as we carry these words into our week ahead, the Lord will present us afresh with opportunities to generously give or minister to those in need. In conclusion, we saw firstly today that Israel made the mistake of putting ritual before religion. Their pleasure was in as if religion, in in pretending to be one thing, but in their personal lives being another. And we saw the perils of that, didn't we? In complete contrast to this, we found that God's pleasure was in the service of others. God delights when his people are focused on those around them, how they can help minister to them and meet their needs. God is there in our personal lives, in our work lives, not just on Sunday. And when we as a people, as a group, follow God's commands to serve each other, it will draw in people around us and make them want to be part of our community too. And finally, we saw that true religion transforms relationships. There's a really personal aspect to issues of fairness and justice and poverty and generosity. We all have opportunities in our personal and work lives to be that generous person, that gracious person, that person who freely gives without expecting something back. I hope that, like myself, you've been challenged this morning by the message and that you'll be blessed with opportunities in the week ahead to be God's hands and feet in somebody's life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word in Isaiah 58. It reminds us anew of the importance you place on justice and generosity, on being an authentic people of God. Lord, we have many examples of sacrificial service of others to be inspired by And we know that your son, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate example of sacrificial service. Please help us to seek out those opportunities to support a just outcome, to give generously in the coming week. 
to give to someone else. We pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, with the grace and the love and the energy to do that. And Lord, we look forward to the blessing you will provide us in knowing we've been able to help someone else. We pray this in your name, Lord, and for your glory. Amen.